choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. Hello, we are almost at the end of January, if you can believe that. And you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. And this show, as always, is sponsored by Exclusive Books. We've got a phenomenal jam-packed show lined up for you over the next hour. We've got eight book reviews and one author interview. We always have such a different mix of content on this show, and today is no different. Interestingly, we have a focus on fiction today. Eight of the nine books we're going to be talking about on today's show are fiction titles, and we have just one lone non-fiction title, which is Arthur Goldstuck's latest, and it's called The Hitchhiker's Guide to AI. So, if it's humans versus robots on today's show, the humans definitely win. Beryl Eichenberger joins us today first, and she's got a new one by international best-selling author Alice Hoffman. The price of freedom can be high, a price that for many of us across this world we live in is a passing thought, for after all, we mostly consider ourselves free. Except, freedom is not what you think it is. It is cold, hard and bright. That was what it felt like to change everything, to pick up the ashes and let them blow in the wind, writes Mia as we open this slim but immersive novel. Best-selling author Alice Hoffman's new novel, The Invisible Hour, is a beautifully crafted story that crosses time, follows the awakening of a young woman, once more shows us the power of books and how words can sustain us through the most challenging of times. For Mia, whose mother Ivy has ended up in a cult, after being forced to flee her family for being pregnant, she had only known the restrictive life of the community, an oppressive cult in western Massachusetts. Harsh discipline was meted out by the narcissistic leader Josh, who had married Ivy and brought Mia up as his own, under the rules that he had created and which his disciples followed. It is a cold and empty life. Reading is not allowed. Hard work on the land is the only outlet and the punishments are humiliating and stultifying. But Mia is a feisty and fiery young girl, and her mother quietly encourages her in her curiosity when they are alone and cannot be overheard. Mia discovers the library in the nearby town, and her world opens. She finds a book by 19th-century author Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter, which seems to be her mother's story, and strangely has an inscription addressed to Mia. For Mia, it is her saviour, the catalyst that will transport her beyond the cult's misery to find a world that will take her through time to love and heartbreak in the best tradition of Hoffman's magical realism. The reader is taken on a journey where the power of words can change lives, move into new time zones, and bring love and heartache. It is a story of dreams, the people who can help you along your way, how to face up to reality when your love is disappearing into the past, and that even in this modern world, there are still restrictions on women. Hoffman always creates powerful and strong characters, but it's the magic of her imagination that is so addictive. That she has a thing about Salem, Massachusetts, and the witches of the past comes through in so many of her books, and it is seemingly that she wants to lay the ghosts of those ancestors who branded sensitive and far-sighted women as witches. As she links past and present, Hoffman spans time in the most realistic and believable way. It is as if she laces her words with potions that allow the reader to sink into a world that allows love and parallel universes to exist side by side, that we escape and find freedom through writing and reading. But of course that's exactly what we do when we immerse ourselves in a story and that is Hoffman's genius, the quality that sets her apart and makes her novels all the more alluring. Our minds are transported, our perspectives are shifted, and words open our imagination. And what of the invisible hour and those places west of the moon? In her poetic and deeply empathetic prose, Hoffman reveals all of this, draws you in, entices you to recognize your own shifting landscape, to own it, and through the social commentary that is inherent in her writing, exposes the injustices that existed then and now. But the message is clear. Believe in yourself. Reach out and know you can do anything. 
And who doesn't want to believe that, even for a little while? This book is absolutely enchanting. The Invisible Owl by Alice Hoffman is published by Simon & Schuster. Thank you, Beryl. I've always been a huge fan of Alice Hoffman's work. She's a fantastic literary fiction author, but you know, she also kind of crosses over to mainstream fiction as well. Uh, She's incredibly readable, so I'm a big fan uh, of her. I'm also a big fan of a book about a cult, so I'll definitely be checking out this one. Next up on the show, we're joined by Shirley Guler, who'll be telling us about the latest Jeffrey Deaver novel. Do you remember Jeffrey Deaver? He used to be huge. In fact, I think he's still huge. This one is called The Watchmaker's Hand. Welcome to the show, Shirley. While the foreplay to the nightmare of everyone living near a building site with the threat of a collapsing crane is excellent, Jeffrey Deaver is that good that one thinks, well, what now? The fun is over. But no, although it did take a couple of chapters to gain my full attention, to the point that I couldn't wait for my morning coffee each day and my quiet time to read before the day hit. Until it was over, the book was done and I was without my companions to the watchmaker's hand. That said, remember, when that crane came crashing down in New York in 2008, and we all started looking at cranes with observant eyes, especially in the wind, wondering if the balances would, well, remain balanced. Jeffrey Deaver has catapulted that moment into an intense intro to the watchmaker's hand, as we live with the operator above the ground, as he sees what is about to come. It turns out to be activism. Sabotage the cranes until there is enough affordable housing. But of course, that's not it. So what is it? Kill a politician? Make a killing literally on the real estate market as it crashes harder than the cranes and wealthy developers can buy land for next to nothing. Read it and see how it takes a bunch of good people to sniff out the baddie and the watchmaker's real desire to kill his nemesis, the mighty but wheelchair-bound forensic investigator Lincoln Rhyme, played so beautifully by Denzel Washington in The Bone Collector. His later wife, Amelia Sachs, was played then by Angelina Jolie, and you can just see her now. There are the expected deaths and double dealings. Disasters dastardly acts as the plot and the subplots are revealed. Of course, they're red herrings. For a minute or two, you actually wonder if the people left for dead are really dead, because it is all so plausible. The book is also very instructive. I always wondered how my phone and laptop clocks always synced, but never asked Dr. Google. Now I know. I learned about the inner workings of a watch and what a clepsydra is, that predecessor of an hourglass. I learned about cranes and the men who operate them. I learned about the habits of the birds of Central Park. I learned about the different properties of various acids and their potential for instant or slow death or simply disfigurement or lung damage, which never managed to impede Sachs as a top-notch New York police detective. Of course, I won't remember any of this, except the fact that it is a great holiday read and a normal, intelligent and fast-paced diva who has written nearly 50 books, six of them with rhyme and sax. Jeffrey Deaver is always such a crowd pleaser. He's a major bestseller internationally. I didn't know he'd written almost 50 books. That's massive. Wow, that's a lot of writing. And now on our lineup, we've got Rachel van der Feyfer. Rachel is our resident YA, that's Young Adult Reviewer. And today, Rachel's going to be reviewing a book by Samantha Shannon called The Bone Season. Apparently, this is the first book in a seven-book series. So this is something you can really dig your teeth into especially if you're a sci-fi and fantasy fan. Welcome to the show, Rachel. What did you think of this one? The 
I love that review. Thank you, Rachel. And not just because the main protagonist's name is Paige. Funny that. Right, so how about some music before we get on with more reviews? Our first track on today's show is Love Changes Everything, and it's by Buchanan. to Fine Music Radio, and this is Book Choice. My name is Paige Nick, and I'm your host. This show is sponsored every month by Exclusive Books. For our next review, we've got a really big one. Vanessa Levenstein read The Fraud, which is the latest book by award-winning best-selling international author Zadie Smith. I've read it too, and I'm going to tell you what I thought about it after I've heard what Vanessa thinks about it. Right, Vanessa, your turn first. Pablo Picasso said, Art is the lie that reveals the truth. Zadie Smith's new novel, The Fraud, explores truth, lies, and the role of fiction in both the telling and remembering of stories. The book has the nuances and ironies of Jane Austen, satire and humour of Charles Dickens, and strong echoes of Toni Morrison. While the subject matter is serious, slavery, death, women's rights, the author's pen flicks from dark to light and examines the role of literature from the go. A filthy young boy, think Dickens, is repairing a broken ceiling. Now you see, madam, and if you don't mind me saying... He picked up a dusty book and turned it over in his hand. 
the sheer weight of literature you've got here, well, that would put a terrible strain on a house. The fraud set in 1873 has at the centre Mrs. Eliza Touche, quite an extraordinary protagonist. She plays her part well as housekeeper, a respectable Victorian woman whose prim veneer hides her pain, creativity, and quest for justice. Eliza's cousin by marriage is William Ainsworth, a man whose one-time claim to fame is that a long time ago one of his books sold more copies than Oliver Twist. Sadie Smith's wit is a delight. After William's initial shock that his friend and rival Charles Dickens died, William stands at Charles's grave and observes that he was not the one buried in it. A forgivable satisfaction, slightly marred by the fact the hole in question had been dug in Westminster Abbey, within spitting distance of the Bard's memorial. Eliza cares for her cousin William. In more than one way, and while she truly loved his first wife, has little in common with his second wife, Sarah, a street-smart, illiterate twenty-six-year-old who, in today's world, would be fixated with the tabloids and reality TV. Remember the voyeuristic fascination around the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard court case? Who to believe? Now rewind a hundred and fifty years ago to the historical Tishborne trial. Is the man in question Roger Tishborne, the long-lost son of aristocrats, or a butcher from Australia? Is he a fraud or the real deal? The chief witness is former Jamaican slave Andrew Bogle. In Toni Morrison's *Beloved*, the devastation of slavery has a horrifying and haunting legacy. Andrew Bogle's story is set in that world, a world so cruel that infanticide is seen as a mercy. As a woman of the Victorian era, with little rights. Eliza feels a kingship with Andrew Bogle, a man whom, from birth, had to calculate his every move to ensure survival. His methods were by necessity obscure and underhand; they were like her own. What role does literature play in both expressing and falsifying our stories? The names of the chapters are telling. Chapter nineteen: A Theory of Truth. It was time for Mrs. Touche to decide what she really believed, to separate fact from fiction once and for all. Different stories, decades, and continents come together under a stack of blotting paper to reveal a protagonist whose questions and actions are both of and ahead of her time. The fraud is an authentic, brilliant read. Okay, thank you so much, Vanessa. That was a fantastic review, and it's going to be better than mine because I read this book too around about the same time as you read it, and I loved the writing in this book. Zadie Smith is there's no doubt she is a master. She knows what she's doing. She writes brilliantly. So I loved the writing in this book, but I didn't love the book. I kind of struggled to get to grips with what it was really about. I mean, I knew what it was about, but I could never tell where it was going. I felt like the author didn't give me direction. She kind of took me in one direction for a chapter, and then in the next chapter, she was taking me in another direction. So I kind of struggled to keep up with it. Although I must say, your review was really handy to help me understand what I was reading. So I got to be honest, I didn't finish it. I got、uh, just over halfway, and then I decided that I would be curious to know what Vanessa thought of it. So the fact that I didn't enjoy it is perhaps more of an indictment on me than it is on the book, because this book has also had rave international reviews. It was on all the Christmas, summer must-read lists around the world, and it'll probably win all the awards next year. So you probably shouldn't listen to me, but that was how I experienced it. You know, I'd be curious to know what you thought of it. If you've read it, feel free to pop us an email to the FMR studio. You'll find our email address on fmr.co.za. Okay, so what's next? Mark Falconer, who is a guest reviewer on the show, joins us, and he's going to be chatting about a slightly easier read than *The Fraud* by Zadie Smith. Mark Falconer read *The New Jack Reacher* by Lee Child, and there's always something to celebrate when Lee Child brings out yet another Jack Reacher book. This author has sold multi, multi millions of copies of this series of books. The new one is called *The Secret*. So let's hear what you've got to say, Mark Falconer. The world is in tatters. The conflagration in Russia and the Ukraine cannot hold a candle to the incandescence that is the Middle East. If ever there was a time for the certainty of Reacher, this has to be it. 
The Secret is not perhaps Lee and Andrew's finest work. It is also not an entirely disappointing read. Perhaps to escape the complexities of the 2020s, we found ourselves back with a demoted Captain Reacher in 1992 and a multidisciplinary or interagency team desperately trying to understand and then stop the randomly sequential, if such a phrase can make sense, killing of scientists who have one alarming item in common on all of their CVs. They all worked on an antidote to Russian-designed biological weapons in the early 1960s, and they may all know something about the secret. Of course, the plot becomes thicker than Reacher's flexing biceps, and although much less predictable, it would be unkind to say that the plot development is a little like an adult pantomime. But sometimes an overly clever plot is less important than the consoling certainty that Reacher will get his man, which he and his team do, even if the outcome is slightly more surprising than they had first thought it would be. Perhaps the Lee brothers are making some small current and political commentary. Perhaps not. Certainly, there are some references to no one being above the law that could lead readers in this direction. And how good that would be even for a world-weary and somewhat jaded South African reviewer. However, I suspect this interpretation is wishful thinking. Reacher, as he always does, forcefully resists being dragged into other people's political disputes. The child's characters are usually on the sparse side, but make up for the roundedness of their portrayal by the confidence, certainly, of their thick and surely defined outlines. In this novel, there were at least two occasions when I felt my suspension of disbelief waver, not enough to send it sprawling, but enough for it to stagger with a faltering misstep. It's what makes every Jack Reacher novel, including this one, the 28th of them, a decent read. We all know that Reacher will crack the case, kick the butt of the bully, and unwaveringly stand up for what is good and right. Reacher is a huge personified, camo-clad, muscle-bound, modern-day morality tale who soothes and brings comfort. Not because we are kept in suspense, but because we know with the certainty of the rising sun that all will come out well for those who are wise enough to be allied with Reacher and the stark clarity of his ethical choices. More than stinging political commentary, this gives hope. Even more satisfying than this, however, is the supremely appealing certainty that the baddies will get their comeuppance, usually brutally and painfully and immediately, and even better without any of that tedious legal courtroom hoo-ha which could get derailed by legal technicalities and be held up endlessly in courts of appeal. Thanks, Reacher. You managed to keep out of the mire of context and ambivalence and obfuscating confusion. With you, there's certainty and action and immediacy. With you, there's nothing shameful, nothing secret. Thank you, Mark. Uh, sounds like a very prescient review of a very prescient book. Sounds actually rather good. And now we turn to another review. This one is from Beverly Ruiz Miller, before we break for a music track. Beverly Ruiz Miller recently read a book called The North Light, and it's by an author named Hideo Yokoyama. There's something very interesting that I've noticed happening in the literary world right now. And that is that there's been this huge increase in Japanese translated books going into the mainstream. So these are books that have sold multi-million copies in, in Japan, and now they're being published in the rest of the world, and they seem to be selling really well in the rest of the world too. It's a very exciting move in publishing. The ones that I've read so far, I've read four or five of these, they generally, these Japanese translated books are generally they're very gentle, very beautifully written, and I enjoy them immensely. But I always can't help feeling like there's something's been lost in the translation. But I think that's what you would expect. Japanese is such an intricate language, and then to translate it into English must be a really tricky task. Translations have always fascinated me. So, Beverly Rose Miller, tell us about this book. I'm listening with both ears. It should not surprise us that many architects yearn to create an iconic building that will be admired and discussed for generations to come. Some buildings, by the American Frank Lloyd Wright or the Swiss-French architect Le Corbusier, 
were as notable in their time as the work of famous painters, such as Picasso or Pollock. Inoru Usa has achieved quite some recognition in Japan by building the Y Residence, a prize-winning, often-discussed private home. Yet he has been unable to replicate this great triumph, which might inadvertently have led to the breakdown of his marriage. He needs to find work in the tightly formalized and competitive structure of Japanese business, where form is no more important than face, and where tradition and modernity fight an ongoing battle to integrate within a modern world. Yokoyama is a preeminent and best-selling Japanese mystery writer. The North Light reveals his mastery of the details of architectural practice without losing the thread of a puzzling and emotional plot. Usa was especially requested to build the Y residence for the Yoshino family with a roomy budget and free reign to build a house you would want to live in. This family of five seemed delighted with his austere yet beautiful creation which carefully captures the soft northern light. Yet, while waiting to hear whether or not it had worked as a family home and not hearing from them, he returns to the residence to discover that they appear to have never moved in, and what is more, it seems they have disappeared. The house itself takes on the character of a ghostly remnant of his project, the only object left in the house is a marvellous chair by the German architect and designer Bruno Tart, who had lived for a while in Japan. A seat placed in the centre of a room to stare at the lighted sky. Did the family not like their new home? This seems odd, for they had exhibited genuine enthusiasm about it. Why are they now untraceable? Meanwhile, Usa is under pressure to compete for a large contract for the firm now employing him, though the mystery leaves him struggling for inspiration. This novel is not only about the mystery involved, but also about the complex and quite formal relationships within Japanese business and family structures. Some knowledge of the culture may help the reader, but it is easy to read and well translated. I found no difficulty with it. Besides the gradual unraveling of the puzzle, this is also an exploration into marriage and its expectations, ambition and disappointments, and a notion that love may not always appear in an immediately recognizable form, not even in a building. The North Light is by Idio Yokoyama.
that track was The Circle of Life by the Barlow Brothers. And all of today's music was compiled and selected by Mzuma Keta. And our show was compiled by Mwandi Lobi. So thanks, you guys. We couldn't do this show without you. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. And our show is sponsored by Exclusive Books. We couldn't be more grateful to have them on board with us. If there is a book you seek, you will absolutely find it at Exclusive Books. Right, we pick up with another review. This one is by John Hanks. John Hanks is normally our nature book reviewer, but today he's got something slightly different for us. John Hanks has the honor of reviewing the only non-fiction title on our whole show today. So, John Hanks is here to chat about the new one by Arthur Goldstuck, and this is called The Hitchhiker's Guide to AI. Over to you and the robots, John.
What an interesting sounding book. You know, as a writer, I'm always curious about what's going on with AI and chat GPT and whether I'm going to have a job tomorrow. So we're all watching to see how this rolls out in the future. Next up, we've got one more review before we move on to another track and our interview for today's show. This is a review of a book called Paperless, and it's by Bantu Siwisa. And Twanji Kalula is here to tell us what it's like. This is a book about migrants, legal and illegal, out of time, on the wrong side of the UK's departments of immigration, and they're all paperless, hence the title. At first, I actually thought this was a non-fiction title, and when I googled it and read up about it, I see that it's fiction. So this looks like a really interesting title. Welcome to the show, Twanji. 2024 is a big election year around the world, and this year we'll see voters in countries like the UK and the US and South Africa head to the polls to choose their national leaders. In each of these countries I've mentioned, one of the topics that's become key to many political campaigns is migration. You really can't escape it. As thousands of people cross borders illegally, often risking their lives in search of a better life, politicians are being tasked with coming up with viable solutions to tighten up their borders and stem the flow of illegal immigrants. It is such an emotive issue, it is very divisive, and it will be make or break for many political campaigns. I've been following these themes in the news, and I must say I find it fascinating, uh, which made my latest read, Paperless, which is the debut novel by Buntu Siwisa, all the more appealing. Suisa is an academic researcher and a writer who spent some time studying at Oxford, and he was inspired to write about the experiences of the many undocumented South African and African migrants living around him in Oxford. He calls these undocumented migrants the paperless people. As politicians grandstand and threaten to build walls and put together legislation to send illegal migrants to Rwanda, it's easy to forget that behind each illegal migrant is a personal story. And this book does a beautiful job of tackling the issues and giving illegal immigration a human face through some colorful, layered, memorable characters. Uh, they've all been dealt a difficult hand in life and they're doing the best they can to survive. The main character, Luzuka, is a South African student studying at Oxford and grappling with a range of identity-related issues around what it means to be African in the UK. As he engages with the British education system, he's also questioning how we navigate a post-colonial world with fewer cultural borders. In addition, he's also recently lost his father, who lived in political exile, and he's coming to terms with the real cost that his family have paid for their freedom. Suisa calls Paperless the novel of his youth. He says he started writing it over 20 years ago, and it went through various iterations before it was published a few months ago. I obviously didn't get to see the earlier drafts of this novel, but I do reckon that it really benefited from his maturity over time. The reason I say this is because the themes raised in the novel are incredibly complex, but he handles them with compassion and cleverness. He does a great job of layering all the issues that make us feel so strongly about migration, irrespective of which side of the border debates we are on. Novels like this can become painful, preachy, and excessively academic, but it's not the case with this one. With absolute flair, he captures the discomfort and ongoing fear that is constant for anyone who's playing a game of cat and mouse with a country's immigration department. And despite having a sympathetic lens for these characters, he also shares their flaws. They really are well-rounded. As someone with British and African heritage, I was always going to resonate with this book, but I really didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did. It is a very different, refreshing novel, and it has a pretty striking cover, too. Paperless by Buntu Siwisa was published by Jakana and retails for 290 rand.
That track was Fragile by Charles Duplessis and Zanta Hofmeyer. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick, and our show is sponsored by Exclusive Books. We only have one interview in today's show, but it's one that I've been very much looking forward to. Melvin Minna is here to talk to Sven Axelrod about his novel, which is called Buried Treasure. Now, this novel came out early last year, 2023, and I read it when it came out at launch. It was actually one of my very favorite reads of last year. So I had it on my Christmas list. I was telling everyone to buy it. I enjoyed it so much. It's dark and quirky and naughty and a little dirty. And it's strange and it's smart and it's interesting and it's quite literary. Which is why I was so keen to have this author come on the show to explain himself. So while, again, this is not a new book, it's a book that, in my view, is very much worth your time. That is, if you like something a little dark, a little different, then I think this one will be for you. It's not your normal read. If you like Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders, which came out a couple of years ago, then you might enjoy this one. Welcome to the show, Sven, and thank you for chatting to Melvin Minar. Durban based Sven Axelrod's first novel, Buried Treasure, has set the imaginative world on fire. Perhaps I should say he should be honoured for liberating our reading imagination. Fairy tales and ghost stories are so ready for reinvention, or is that reimagination? And Axelrat has conjured up an unusually quirky literary narrative, which takes all kinds of twists and turns and never seems to lose a wickedly keen sense of wit and humour. The novel is a reader's box of tricks which indulges in artifice of language and storytelling. Set in a town called Vino, the scene is the treasury, the local graveyard, where the young gutter living girl Nuvo is taking over the job of master of cemeteries from Mateus, whose dog God, well, did him in badly. Ghosts and characters from the past enter and exit, and the result is the romping celebration of life in death and the existential question of identity and names. So welcome to Sven Axelrad. Hi, Marvin. Lovely to be here. I'm not going to ask you to explain the enigma of the book's title, which puzzled me, but let's talk names. Among the cast of characters, which is given at the back of the book, are Matthias, Nuvo, Augustine, Arturo, Martin, Alto, Catalina, Alejandro, etc., etc., etc. They ring delicious bells of reference. Were those names associations a starting point to the characters? And how did you come upon them? And how did they compel the narrative? Well, I mean, the whole point of this novel was really to figure out who we would be if our names were lost to us. That's why everyone's name is sort of a bit unusual, maybe spelt backwards, maybe a reference to something else. Because I kind of wanted to have a look at identity without a name. And, you know, as the greatest sort of bumper sticker to our lives. As to all the, you know, sort of foreign sounding names... For me, the town of Viva was a little bit of a mishmash of places I'd been to that I thought were awesome. Lisbon being very much one, Madrid, Barcelona, but also very much South African, you know, very Durban. I don't know if you got a bit of a feel for Durban in there with a central municipality that doesn't work so well, <laughs> things like that. I must say, Vivo sort of tickled me. I didn't quite get the Vivo thing, but I loved the names like Augustino, etc. You know, of course, Roberto Bolano's novel, The Savage Detectives. I just love yeah. that. You know, it's like a key element to say the least. Tell me, how did this come into play in the novel? Well, you know, the way that it starts is obviously with a young girl sleeping on the savage detective as a pillow. And I must admit, my first draft of the book, she wasn't sleeping on Bologna's Savage Detective. She was sleeping on an old Russian book because, you know, something like a Tolstoy or Dostoevsky mm. was the right width for a pillow. Um, <laughs> but as I went on, I realized that those books went right, you know, and I wanted something, you know, like how the book is based on Bob Dylan's A Hard Rain's Going to Fall yeah. as a scaffold. Dylan himself is like a legendary character, right? Like shrouded in mystery and story. And I really wanted a book that had the same feel. And I don't know if you know a lot of Bologna's history, but he's there's so many rumors about him. You know, was he a heroin addict? How did he die? He died young, such a prolific writer that his books are still coming out today. Mm. And so I just thought he was such a perfect choice to be part of the world of Vivo. Yes, there seems to me, I mean, I'm not entirely sure, but there seems to be like a parallel between the structure of The Savage Detectives and your novel in a strange kind of way, or was just this me being the literary detective at work here? <laughs> I think that might be you being a savage detective as well. I mean, subconsciously, these things happen 
quite often. And The Savage Detectives is such a complicated novel that it, you know, it's, I suppose I didn't consciously do it, but I was reading it quite a lot at the time. So who knows? Well, you've inspired me to revisit it. And of course, then I saw all the list of characters in that novel as well. (laughs) And I did use some of their names. Yeah, I I always warn people before they, you know, you've read it before, but if it's trying the Savage Detectives for the first time, I always warn them, you know, it is quite a difficult book, but rewarding as well. Yeah, it's very South American. But your novel has a beautiful touch structure, even as narrative points of view shifts. And this is, again, my intrigue as literary, whatever, detective. But what's interesting, indulger that's you, of prose and wordplay at work. Was it fully planned beginning to end, or did you invent and discover it as you wrote? I am not a planner at all. I've tried to plan books before, and I completely fail. I would like to plan because it would take away a lot of my stress, I think, but I can't do it. If I plan, then the work becomes boring to me. So to be dead honest, I literally just start with an idea and a character or two, and then I make it up on the fly as I go. I know it's not an ideal way to work sometimes, but especially with this novel, I wrote it at a time where I was kind of losing hope to being published, and I wrote it completely for myself, completely indulging all of my whims and ideas and not holding myself back, wondering what people might think of it, you know, because as far as I was concerned, it was just for me. So I think you're reading something that really is just a labor of love and the way that my mind works. I love the way that the narrator comes into the story Mm. all the time as well. Talking of which, are you working on new things now? I am. And just a quick about the narrator, having the mechanism of narrator that is able to talk directly to you helped me so much when I was a bit lost. You know, like sometimes you're writing and you're not sure what to say next. And then I suddenly realized that I could just say that I don't know what to say as a narrator, you know, and sort of have him bumble along a little bit, which (laughs) was really comforting. I loved it. (laughs) Yeah. And then to answer your question, yes, I've just handed in yesterday a new manuscript final edit for the next one that's coming out. It's a sequel of sorts to Buried Treasure. It happens in the same world, but new cast of characters and Penguin Random House are going to bring it out in May this year. Fantastic news, my friend. Yes, I'm very excited about it. I really like it too. I mean, I love Buried Treasure and this one, I think I might like it more. It's a little bit different, maybe less, I don't want to say it, but maybe less beautiful in moments, but far more action-packed and full of fun, still with the same philosophical sort of undertones and musings in this. So it's really exciting to me. Fantastic. We're looking forward to that. We've been talking to Sven Axelrad, who's in Durban. The Wondrous Buried Treasure is published by Umutsi. Thanks a lot, Sven. Thank you.
track was Marcherie by Freshly Ground. Before we play out today, we want to finish the show with what we call a little book bite. This is a really interesting little book. It's a collection of poetry, and it's by Beatrice or B.T. Willoughby. Now, B.T. Willoughby is Fanula Dowling's daughter, and Fanula Dowling is one of South Africa's, was easily one of South Africa's finest literary authors. This is B.T.'s first literary launch. It's a very slim little poetry collection, and it's called So, Comma. Not the word comma, it's an actual comma, comma. Anyway, so we wanted to play out with this review because there's a beautiful reading of one of her poems and it's a lovely way to end the show fantastically. You'll see why. So Vanessa, it's your turn to tell us about So, Comma. So much thought, pain, joy, love, exquisite expression, humor and surprising twists and twirls come together in the poetry collection So by Beatrice Willoughby. The daughter of two brilliant creators, she has her own voice, authentic, unflinching, and meaningful. In an age where young people express themselves through a string of selfies and mindless emojis, Beatrice's poetic voice is all the more valuable, much like an artist using oils instead of a paint app. She uses words both lightly and with an intensity which I found very moving, especially when describing the loss of her father, the late Guy Willoughby. She writes of love, both romantic, and the bond she shares with her mother, author Fanula Darling. As a copywriter, she understands the art of brevity and clearly has fun juggling words. This slim volume of 46 poems has a fetching soft pink cover with So embossed in black. As this review is going out in January, albeit when most of us are back at work, this poem feels most apt for the end of the festive season. It's called using adverbs to recover from a hangover. Tasting water gratefully, eating a pie ferociously, remembering conversations ashamedly, removing makeup gingerly, self-pitying indulgently, sleeping loudly, green juicing proudly, re-emerging triumphantly. So by Beatrice Willoughby is a poetry collection to be reread, shared, and discussed. And that's our show for today. I would love to thank all our reviewers and all our interviewers. Well, we only had one interviewer today, and that was Melvin Minar. And of course, we have to thank all the authors of these lovely books we've reviewed, and all the publishers who send us these wonderful books to read. And of course, Mwandi and Mzu, thank you for helping us pull the show together. I also need to thank Exclusive Books. Without them, we wouldn't have a show. In fact, without you, we wouldn't have a show either. So thank you for listening. We're going to play out with Bohemia by the DNA String, and we'll be back in two weeks with another book choice. Until then, happy reading. Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books locally and internationally. Exclusive books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest exclusive books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za. 